Over the course of our marriage, both before we were parents and since we've become parents, Wanda and I have had the privilege of caring for other people's children in a babysitting context. Friends and family members have asked us to care for their children, and usually this would happen after school until the parent uh, would pick them up after work. So a scenario that would often happen would play out like this. The child or children would be at our house when I would get home from work. And when I would arrive, my wife would say, Hey, Paul, can you hang out with these kids for a few minutes while I get supper on the table? Their parents will be here to pick them up any minute. Now, most of you know that Wanda and I are parents to two beautiful girls. And if the children that we were being babysat were girls, I was okay. I knew what to do. Okay, girls, get out your dolls and let's play with them or let's do a craft together. But if we were babysitting a boy, that was a little tougher for me. And almost 100% of the time, if I was connecting or entertaining a boy for a few minutes, it would sort of devolve into a wrestling match. I don't know what it is about boys, but they love to wrestle. And something I learned when wrestling with young boys is that they're ruthless when it comes to what they will do to win a wrestling match. I remember wrestling with one young boy and thinking, oh, I didn't think you were going to hit me there. What I failed to do was set some ground rules for the wrestling match we were in. We are in the middle of our You Asked For It series, and today we are addressing the topic, how should I respond when I disagree? And when we address this question, I think it's important for us to establish some ground rules. This is going to take a little bit of time, but I think the ground rules will help us have a fair fight when we disagree. So I think the first question we need to ask ourselves is, how should I approach disagreement? And I think we should approach disagreement with a healthy amount of agape held in open hands. The Bible was written in two major languages, Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. In Greek, there are four words for love. And agape is the ancient Greek word for the purest love imaginable. When God is described in scripture, he's described as agape. Thankfully, we talked along these lines a few years ago when we went through our purest love imaginable series. I think that was a huge turning point for our church as we began to not only refer to this idea of agape, but we began to cling to it as a lifeline for our souls and a weapon against the enemy. We learned that agape is not just what God does, it is who he is. It is his nature. When the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth and describes love so eloquently in 1 Corinthians 13, he is using the word agape. In verses 4 to 8, when Paul says love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth, it always protects always loves, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Every time we see the word love here, Paul is using the Greek word agape. The foundational view of a relationship with Christ is that we were made to have constant interaction with this agape God. This is what we were created for. But because of sin entering the world, we turned our backs on God. And even though this has happened, God never turned his back on us. His unconditional agape love continues to be poured out on us. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's agape love for us. And remember, God's agape love and its ultimate revelation through his son Jesus, it's not just to flow to us, but through us. We are to be rivers of agape. It should find its way into everything we do and especially into every relationship we have. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 22 when he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, 
This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You guessed it. Every use of the word love here is the Greek word agape. We said that if agape is truly unconditional love, then that means we are to agape love no matter who the person is or what the person is doing. And agape means we can love a person even if we believe their actions are morally or ethically wrong. Agape loving someone means I don't have to agree with or endorse the actions of the person I'm loving. When it comes to politics or it comes to opposing views on controversial topics, we were encouraged that it's okay to protest the policy, but it's never okay to detest the person. I mentioned that our agape needs to be held with open hands because I think getting through disagreements requires humility. Humility is an essential skill and invaluable in getting through disagreement. Humility asks, what don't I know about you or this situation? Disagreement can lead to distance and division in relationships, and fear becomes the fuel for that separation. Fear is a powerful motivator, and unfortunately, with social media and our charged political climate, social unrest, and the global pandemic, people are motivated by fear more than ever before. Disagreement often means that I will talk to that person only when I'm trying to correct them or convince them. You've been there, right? The only time you talk to someone is when you're trying to change their mind and help them see your point of view. But I think we should adopt a different approach. Humility says that I can have a conversation with you because we're in relationship. We will let agape rule our relationship. When you are living in agape, disagreement is not about winning, it's about learning. I've seen this in my own life. Wanda and I struggled to have children for the first 11 years of our marriage. It was painful. It was hard and discouraging. I mean lots of tears. A lot of painful Mother's Days and Father's Days. Now God has since allowed us to become parents through adoption twice, but it was in those painful 11 years of waiting that my belief that human life begins at conception was solidified. Now, maybe even as I share that, you are finding yourself in disagreement with me. But I felt like I was a walking billboard as to why abortion was wrong. Because I thought, if there ever was an unwanted child anywhere in the world, I'll take that child. I'll take all of them. As is normal in life, I met people who disagreed with my view that life begins at conception. As I began to ask them the reasons they believed what they believed, and as I asked them, what don't I know about you and your perspective on this situation, I began to understand that truly valuing life is about valuing things like supporting single moms and people in poverty and people in situations of domestic violence. It's about supporting rape victims and supporting those who foster children. It's about supporting fair immigration policies, caring for the poor and for our indigenous people. It's about our seniors and shut-ins and believing that all people, including unborn children, matter to God. Disagreeing about where life begins while adopting a posture of humility helped me understand that life is precious and needs to be valued for everyone and at all times. So let's review. So far we said that the way we should approach disagreement is with a healthy amount of agape, which we've learned is the purest love imaginable, and that we need to approach disagreement with humility. Now let's get to the answer to the question, how do I respond when I disagree? The Apostle Peter wrote about this in 1 Peter 3. This letter was written to a group of persecuted Christians in Asia Minor. Paul is not writing to people who are having an easy time of it. He's writing to people who are facing challenges and struggles living in their everyday life. Let's read together. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. 
because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. The deeper context and setting of this passage is that the Apostle Peter has been giving his readers instructions on how to live with each other in relationship. He has discussed how we are to relate to our rulers and masters, and now you can equate that to how you think about your bosses here. He's also talking about the marriage relationship, how men and women should respond to their mates and respect them even when they disagree. And now in these verses, Peter sums up his thoughts with these general statements that apply to all relationships. He begins by saying, finally, all of you. If you have your Bible open or are taking notes, circle that phrase, all of you. His very first words are an encouragement that this message is not just for super Christians. This isn't just a passage that was applicable only to the first century church. It's, it's for you to follow in your life. This is for everyone. Then Peter says, live in harmony with one another. Circle the word harmony. The word harmony here is the Hebrew word shalom. We often think of that word as strictly meaning peace, but it, it's actually so much more than that. Shalom implies completeness, connectedness, wholeness, unity. It means to be perfectly in relationship one with the other, to be at peace with them in mind, body, and spirit. It means you are complete harmony and accord with the other person. You think about disagreeing with someone, and then you realize that Jesus actually prayed shalom for us on the night that he was betrayed. He asked God that we might be made one as he and the Father were one, that we might be in complete unity, one in heart, mind, soul, and spirit, in complete harmony in our relationships. And that's what Peter is saying here. That's our goal of shalom. Our goal is to live in harmony with one another. He goes on to say in verse 8, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Does that mean we'll all look alike and think alike? And have the same ideas and thoughts on everything? Well, no, of course not. We need to realize that disagreements aren't always bad. God made us different. We have different beliefs, customs, traditions, and ways of looking at the world. Scripture is full of cases where Christian leaders disagreed with each other on various issues. We can disagree on matters that are not considered orthodoxy. Orthodoxy literally means correct opinion. And when we use the term orthodoxy, we are talking about those parts of our faith that are foundational, central, essential doctrines of the Christian faith that distinguish it from all other religions and from cults. There are things that are not up for debate. Jesus' death and resurrection, the atonement of our sin through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, the Trinity, God as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwelling Christians to empower us and guide us into maturity in Christ. These are all essential parts of our faith that all other Christian churches agree on, that these are foundational. But not all issues debated by Christians are matters of orthodoxy. What political party you support is not a matter of orthodoxy. What type of music you like to hear at church is not a matter of orthodoxy. What your position is on COVID vaccinations is not a matter of orthodoxy. Was Jesus really born on December 25th? Not a matter of orthodoxy. We can disagree on these things, but how we disagree is important. Respond with the priorities of unity and grace. Don't let disagreements derail your relationship with one another or with God's church. This is where we get back to talking about protesting the policy, which is fine. If you feel strongly about the issue, you can do that, but you can't detest the person. In Acts 15, there's a story of Paul and Barnabas. They had a sharp disagreement about John Mark as they were getting ready for their second missionary journey. Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark to them, but Paul said no. 
John Mark had abandoned them before and Paul didn't trust him on this trip. So Paul and Barnabas argued and eventually they split up. Paul and Silas went one direction and Barnabas and John Mark went another. The thing to see here is that even though Paul and Barnabas couldn't work together anymore, they could still love and support one another. They were not bitter enemies. They still had the same goal, which was to bring people to Christ. They were still in relationship with each other. They still loved each other. They just disagreed on this one issue. Remember the relationship. We can disagree without being disagreeable. Remember, you don't have to win every argument. 1 Peter 3.9 says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Do you know that you are not required to get into an argument about every issue that you have an opinion on? We don't have to take sides on every issue or be in every argument. There's a tension in our culture because it seems like our world has chosen against the middle and unfortunately we've become more and more polarized. Our world continues to become more and more polarized, it seems, every couple of months. Andy Stanley writes about this term, leading from the middle. It means you try to stay out of the extremes doesn't mean you're compromising your beliefs. It means you're not letting your commitment to your beliefs compromise your Christ-likeness. It means resisting the urge to make a point and accepting the challenge of making a difference. When we only seek to make a point, it often comes at the expense of those on the other side. It's easy to make a point, but to make a real difference, something needs to be done. Telling someone they're wrong, it's not the same as inspiring them to do it right. To the person who uses their Facebook page to frequently share your political beliefs, realize that you can totally do that if you want, but ask yourself, are you more interested in making a point or making a difference? To the person who cannot possibly accept someone as a Christ follower if they are in support of a certain political party, you can believe that if you want, but ask yourself, are you more interested in making a point or making a difference? If you have a hard time loving or accepting someone because of the sin you see them engaged in. Ask yourself, are you more interested in making a point or making a difference? I remember a few years ago, I was at my father-in-law's church and we were sitting in the adult Bible class before the morning worship service. And I had the opportunity to hear a global worker who works in a Muslim country share a little bit about his work. As he was sharing in this informal setting, he posed us this question. What is the best way to prove the truth about who Jesus is to my next door Muslim neighbor in my country. The responses from the crowd were things like, well, you, you need to prove to them the truth of the Bible, that it's a reliable historical document. Someone else said, you need to show them the proofs that Jesus was really the son of God. Someone even said, you need to lead them through the four spiritual laws, which, which is a reference to a gospel tract that was a common evangelistic tool back in the 80s and 90s. With every suggestion, the global worker replied, well, that's an idea, but I don't think it's the best idea. And this went on for about 10 minutes or so, and then I figured I had a good idea what the right answer was. So I put up my hand and I said, I think the best way to prove the truth about who Jesus is would be to invite them over to your house for a meal. Making the point is trying to prove something to someone. Making a difference is taking the time to get to know them. These principles are especially true if you're watching today and you're a leader. If you're watching and you're a leader, whether at work or in your social group or even in your family, Realize you don't need to take a stand on everything the public wants you to take a stand on. Next, embrace the task of providing clarity, not certainty. 
If there is an issue that you just don't feel passionately about, don't allow yourself to be dragged into an argument about it. You don't have to be in every argument. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just stay out of the fight. You can help the situation by providing clarity. Providing clarity looks like reminding people what the Bible says about a specific topic, if it says anything at all. Providing clarity means reminding people about what being like Christ requires of us in this situation. I've always appreciated over the years how Pastor Darren will often address a topic by explaining the points that both sides are trying to make. And then he includes this short but incredibly respectful and empowering phrase. He says, intelligent and godly people disagree on this topic. Embrace the task of providing clarity, not certainty. Also, release the need to be right in every disagreement. One of the central concepts of Christianity is submission, humility, surrender. That doesn't mean that you give up and admit the other person is right, but it means you choose to step back and not to force your way in just to win an argument. You remain more concerned about the relationship and the damage an argument might cause than winning a fight over an inconsequential matter. Finally, refuse to be offended. Author Brand Hansen says, forfeiting our right to anger makes us deny ourselves and makes us others-centered. When we start living this way, it changes everything. Another author, Catherine Miracle says, when you have a disagreement with a loved one, I challenge you to say, I love you more than this argument. If someone acts or responds in a way that causes anger to rise in you or causes you to feel offense, you don't actually have to be offended. You can choose to not be. Offense leads to anger, to distance, or to canceling that person altogether. As Peter says here in verse 9, you don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but respond in love when things get heated. Sometimes the best thing you can do is surrender yourself Step back and let the Holy Spirit come into the conversation rather than demand your own way. I'll leave the final word to our friend Andy Stanley as he sums it up really well. This will serve as our big idea today. Differences are inevitable, but division is a choice. I cannot avoid the differences that will arise between myself and others in my life. I will be on opposite sides of issues, both big and small, from now until Jesus returns. This is not possible to totally mitigate. Differences are inevitable, but division, that's something totally different. If I choose to be divided simply by the fact that I disagree with someone, that's a choice I'm making. Maybe you're listening today and you are on the opposite side of some issue or someone that you love. Maybe you're living in a house divided. Maybe you're working in a business divided or having summer holidays with an extended family divided. Where are divisions in your life right now? How can you respond with agape and humility in the midst of this setting? Where can you decide, I will not be offended? Listen, God is holy. That means he is without sin. He has never experienced sin. We are sinful and we needed something that would deal with the eternal and impossible sin problem in our life. God's holiness is the ultimate differentiating trait. And I'm so glad God's holiness, which makes him different from me because of my humanity, that holiness didn't prevent him from sending his son to be my example and my sacrifice. He chose to love me. He chose to be close to me, even though my sin was in opposition to his holiness. I'm so glad that my sins are forgiven because God forgave my differences and dealt eternally with the division between him and I. 
And if you've never had the opportunity to walk across the bridge of that divide, if you have never made a decision to follow Jesus, I'm going to give you an opportunity to heal that division right now. Let's pray. In this moment, as you're watching this video, maybe you're realizing that you have never made a decision to follow Jesus and you feel that distance from him. Maybe as I've been speaking, uh, God has been stirring your heart and you're realizing that you find yourself lacking when it comes to reconciling the sin that's in your own life with the holiness of God. You can pray with me this simple prayer. Just repeat after me. It's not important that the person next to you hears it. It's important that God hears it. Just repeat this prayer after me. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know that there's some distance between you and I. I want to be close to you. I come to you today and ask that you would forgive my sin. I pray that you would give me the courage to live a life that pleases you. And help me tell someone about the decision I've made before my head hits the pillow tonight. In Jesus' name. And others of you are here today and you were stirred by this discussion about disagreement because you know that you're in disagreement with someone. I pray that today you would let the concepts of agape rule in your life, that you would reach out to the person that you were in disagreement with. You would reach out to them with the agape love of Jesus. So God, for those who find themselves on opposite sides of issues with people that they love, people in their workplace, people in their extended family. God, would you give them the courage to extend agape and that the courage for the other person to receive it, that things would be mended and that disagreements would bring people together, would help them realize that they're stronger together. We pray for your agape love to abound. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've made a decision to follow Jesus, I would love for you to text the number on the screen and tell a pastor about the decision you've made. We'd love to support you in the next step of your journey. God bless you. Thanks for being with us at Church Online.